Our gracious and holy God, we thank you for your word and its truth. And we just pray now that you would uh, open our hearts and our minds as we uh, look more deeply at what you have to say in this passage. God, it's my prayer that uh, whatever is said today, that you would move me out of the way in anything that is not of you, and that your spirit would carry your word to the hearts and minds of everybody here. Whether it's challenging, whether it's comforting, whatever it is, God, we know that your words are good. So let us honor them. Let us be blessed by them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you all are serious about the gospel in this congregation. That's a good thing, right? Okay. <laughs> I thought it was a good thing. So, uh, greetings from the land of Arcadia, where per capita we consume more avocado toast than anywhere in the United States. So, we're very concerned about the supply chain issues right now. So, um, if you don't have a Bible in front of you or your phone with the, the text up, I would appreciate it if you would go there. It's good to have the word. We'll have the words on the screen, yes, but it's good for you to have it right in front of you as well, um, not only to refer to as we teach through it, uh, but also to be checking the one who is teaching it. That's also an important thing. John tells us to, not John Demeter, but John the Apostle tells us to test the spirits, and you should do that. At Redemption, we've been working our way intermittently, it seems like, through the book of John, uh, I call John chapters 14 through 16, this section we're in now prior to Advent, I call it Jesus' famous last words. It's the last chance that he has to teach his disciples and talk to his disciples. And one of the things I hope you notice is that when it really counts, when it's his, the last night that Jesus has a shot at these guys prior to his crucifixion, He's not talking about those things that you and I seem to be so concerned about. Things like Amazon deliveries and the stock market, Trump and Biden, uh, toilet paper inventories, or how the Cardinals, Suns, or Diamondbacks are doing. Uh, notice I didn't mention the Coyotes because that really is important and unfortunately they're just not doing well this year. Anyway, the point is, no, 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 Jesus, he's got this shot, and so he's talking about mission, vision, purpose. He's trying to prepare them for what it's going to be like when he goes away. And specifically in the last two weeks, chapter 15 was divided into these three parts that talked about different relationships. There, were, there was the, uh, the relationship of the disciples, which not, it, that's not just his disciples in that day. We would be considered his disciples too. So the relationship of us to Jesus in the first 11 verses. And then 12 through 17 was the relationship of the disciples to each other. So again, that's us, our relationship to each other in our faith community. And then the last part, probably the longest part, and the most challenging part, of course, is the relationship of the, the disciples or the church to the world and what's that, what that is like. And then we remember also that in the last half of chapter 14, prior to going into those relationships, Jesus gave an introduction to the Holy Spirit. And then he reintroduces the Holy Spirit at the end of chapter 15 in verses 26 and 27. And now you notice in this passage, it's pretty much all about the Holy Spirit again. So this is very important. 
The point is, is that what we're going to look at today is the work of the Holy Spirit and the fact that we need the Holy Spirit desperately. The Holy Spirit is essential to our walk in the Christian faith. It's not an, ap- an optional add-on. It is essential. It is essential um, for us as Christ followers to try to hold the Spirit in abeyance is a mistake. We, we, we must... The Holy Spirit is always present, but we must open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit. We must welcome him in all the time. So I'm going to go through this three parts, through three parts, and just kind of unpack each part as we go. And here's the first part, the first four verses, uh, verses four through seven. I'll reread them. Jesus says, but I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. (laughs) This is amazing. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The most important thing about Jesus going away is that the Holy Spirit is going to come. The best thing about Jesus going away is that the Holy Spirit is going to come. The scariest thing about Jesus going away is that the Holy Spirit is going to come and they have no idea yet what that means. And the most expansive thing about Jesus going away is that the Holy Spirit is going to come. In other words, on that last one, the most expansive thing, as long as Jesus was there in person, his mission, his purpose, and his ministry was localized. But with the coming of the Spirit, the vision and the mission of the church went worldwide. That's very important. But before we dive more fully into the work of the Holy Spirit, Let's start by understanding why Jesus says what he says, specifically in verse 4. Verse 4 is a pretty important verse because it kind of sums up what he's just said and then prepares them for what he's about to say. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I have told them to you. So here's what Jesus is saying. It's very important to understand. This is in their context, not, not like our context. This is in their context, understand. Nothing like our context. In their context, being a Christian was really, really hard. They, they would be outcasts. They would be marginalized. They would lose their jobs. They would lose their way of life. Their families would curse them and walk away from them. They would be the scourge of the culture. The government wouldn't like them. They would be persecuted, oppressed, and suffer. They were going to have a, a, an experience and an existence that had nothing to do with cupcakes and muffins. This was going to be like broccoli and carrots for them. It's not like today where Christians are esteemed and revered and respected. It's not like today where if you come to Christ and give your life to Christ, all of your problems are solved and your life becomes easier and you make a lot more money and all the people that you know wish that they were more like you. In Arcadia, we call this sarcasm. (laughs) This is our spiritual gift in Arcadia. And if you have the spiritual gift of sarcasm or even cynicism, we welcome you in Arcadia. We welcome you. Jesus is saying to them, and he is saying to us, we need to hear this. He's saying it to us too, that when this life of following him gets really rough, and it will get really rough, we need to remember who he is. 
We need to remember his teaching. We need to remember his promises, which are validated by his resurrection. We need to remember the hope that he has given us, which is a true hope. It's not a, it's not a hope like maybe it will happen, maybe it won't happen. It's not a hope like I hope I get the raise, I hope I get the promotion, I hope the Suns win the NBA championship. We already saw how that worked out. I hope, um, I hope she says yes when I ask her out. I hope he doesn't ask me out. It's not a hope, it's not a hope like that. This is a hope that is guaranteed by the resurrection. We, we know we can count on these things because he was raised and he's going to return to us. We're getting ready to enter the Advent season very quickly. And, and we celebrate the fact that he's going to come. But also he's preparing us for the fact that another reason why we have hope is he's going to give us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's going to do a lot of work. And it's going to be good work. It's going to be hard work, but it's going to be good work. So the resurrection of Jesus guarantees us our hope. You know, sometimes it's helpful to slow down and put ourselves in the disciples' place, however, because they're very sad, they're scared, they're anxious, they're not sure about all of this. And, and here's why. The reason is all of these guys, all of these disciples were considered rejects in their context. They were considered flunkies. Uh, some of the interesting historical stuff I've read about this is that uh, essentially in the first century B.C., the first century A.D., uh, the way the whole rabbinic process worked, the way the whole Hebrew school uh, system worked for, for young Jewish men was that they all went to school. They all went to school to learn the Hebrew Bible. And there were cutoff points along the way. Like at six years old, they would look at how well you were doing your studies in, in Hebrew school. And they would make a decision. They would, they would take a few of them, some of them, and they'd send them away and say, you need to go back and learn your family's business. You're not going to cut it in this arena. And then they'd do it again at about 10 years old. They'd do it again at about 13 years old. And by the time you were 17 or 18, if you made it that far, it's like, that, it's like you were a PhD candidate and now you started interviewing with various rabbis who had made it all the way to become a part of their yoke, to become a part of their group where they would do their teaching. Well, all of these guys that were with Jesus had been rejected or left or cut out of that system at some point. I've heard people somewhat sarcastically say, certainly Peter was cut at six years old. I mean, he was never going to make it, okay? Thomas might have made it a little bit farther. John might have made it. Anyway, so they were all rejects. So when Jesus came and said, follow me, he's this new rabbi, they were given something that was never given in that context. And that was a second chance to do something that they all wished that they could do. Uh, going into the family business was actually a secondary thing for all of them, even though they had to. So they had this chance. And so now they're walking with this rabbi who seemed to cause a lot of trouble, but they get to walk with this rabbi and their dreams had come true. They had status. They had importance. People listened to them. Uh, people thought much of them. And now Jesus is saying, eh, I'm leaving. They're going to crucify me and I'm leaving. So you can understand why they would be anxious about this. And they hadn't had any sort of an experience with the Holy Spirit like they were going to have in the book of Acts yet. So they're in this, what you might call liminal space where they don't know. They're confused. They're frustrated. They're anxious. They don't know what's going on. But what Jesus is saying, and I'm quoting John Demeter here. He's a famous uh, biblical scholar. I'm quoting him here. What Jesus is saying here is I'm going from walking with you to being inside of you by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So that's even better. That's even better. So before we go on to verses 8 through 11, I want to just address this seeming incongruity that we find in these verses too. He says, none of you asked me where are you going. But they had asked him, hadn't they? So I think Peter asked him in chapter 13. John, or, um, Thomas asked him in chapter 4. They had asked him. The, the problem is, is that they had asked him in a temporal sense. They were asking him, where, where are you going? What are you doing? Sort of like, well, what's next? But now Jesus is speaking of going away for good, and he's speaking more existentially. He's talking about being crucified. He's saying that the Spirit is coming, and so they're sad, and they're worried, and they're troubled. And so now they've grown quiet about this larger issue of him going to the Father. And so Jesus points this out in order to set the stage for him to explain what it is that the Holy Spirit will do. That's verses 8 through 11. Let me read those. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So after Jesus is set up, he now explains the work that the Holy Spirit will do. And it's not just, again, he explains this not just for those who are listening on that last night before the cross, but for us today, even now. And we could even say that this is the Holy Spirit's job description. And his job description has only three bullet points. He's going to convict concerning sin, convict concerning righteousness, and convict concerning judgment. How many of you would like to have a job description that has only three bullet points? That would be awesome. The problem here is that these three bullet points are really, really big. They're going to keep the Holy Spirit fairly busy at this time. So before we get to those three points and try to understand them a little bit more, what are we to make of this word convict or conviction? That word in the Greek means to convince it means to reveal the truth about. It means to declare an irrefutable verdict. And it means to expose the guilt one has in relationship to those things. The guilt one has in relationship to those things. That's, uh-oh. The G word, guilt. That word is not in favor in our culture today. We're not guilty. You need to get rid of the word guilt. Guilt leads to unhealthy views of self. Just get rid of that word guilt. Well, I hate to harsh your delicate self-esteem, but the problem is we really are guilty. We are. We talked about it during the confession part of this service. We are guilty. We're sinners. We're lacking in righteousness apart from Jesus. And we'd have to face a holy God without Jesus in our guilt. And here's the thing. We were born into this, and there's nothing we could do to keep from being born into it. And there's nothing we can do about it now apart from Jesus. So many of us think, you know, it's about us doing enough to be able to fix that problem. That we're going to be able to work our way back to God. But we can't be good enough. We can't be sorry enough. We can never work our way into God's grace. We can never work our way into God's grace. In fact, that doesn't even make sense. Work our way into grace? What's the definition of grace? It's unmerited favor. 
What is it that you and I can do to merit unmerited favor? It's a big fat goose egg, nothing. Nothing. This is all about God's grace to us. But we do have a savior, a redeemer, and a rescuer. And that's the whole point of the Holy Spirit coming and working. This is the good news here, that the Holy Spirit is coming. The Holy Spirit will reveal to us, expose to us, convince us of our need for God's love, grace, and mercy. And he will point people to Jesus. So a little bit deeper on these three points. By the way, a full 100% understanding of these three points this side of heaven, I think, can't be done. But we can at least approach it. We can try to approach it. So the first thing he's going to do is reveal, convince, or convict about sin. I I talk to a lot of people um, as a pastor. I'm sure John does too. Charles does too. And occasionally I'll have this conversation. Yeah, yeah, maybe somebody will say, yeah, maybe I'm a little bit sinful, but my good far outweighs my bad. Have you heard that argument before? My good, when, when, it, when it's all said and done, the scales, I'm, I'm going to be much better on the good than on the bad. It, it's as though a lot of people who don't know Jesus have this idea that, that they're part of the PGA Tour and they're going to make the cut somehow. And, and the problem is, is that they're not going to make the cut. Because if you sinned once, actually, even if you've sinned zero times because you were born into this, the problem is the nature we were born into. So no matter what we do, we're in trouble. And so the scales of good and bad don't, don't work. And the Holy Spirit exposes this lie and tells us the truth about us. I came to Christ when I was 27 years old. And I'll tell you, I thought I was about the most righteous thing out there at 27. And if it weren't for the Holy Spirit opening my eyes and convincing me of my unrighteousness, I never would have come to God. It was all the Spirit's working in me. It was him having to reveal, convince, and convict me about my own sin. And so what the Holy Spirit exposes, and the word is, and I know we don't care much for this word, but it's the right word. The word is depravity. Depravity is a complete inability to see our own fault and iniquity. And it is because of this depravity that people see no use for Jesus. They just, we just don't believe in him. When the Holy Spirit convicts us in regard to sin, the specific consequence of that conviction is that we will finally understand our need for Jesus. And that's good. And the reason this happens is that when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, we finally see the truth of who God is and who we are. God is holy and we're not. And so we need a supernatural intervention by his son in order to turn to him. So the next thing is that he's going to convince us. He's going to reveal to us. He's going to convict us of righteousness. You know, the world has a path to and a standard of righteousness that not only dismisses the need for the gospel, but is diametrically opposed to the gospel. Indeed, in our culture today, we have stringent purity tests that we're all subject to. And the test is simple. In our culture, in our world, we are required to think and act in the culturally correct way about gender, about sex, about race, about economics, about politics, and about education. And if we don't pass those tests 100% in absolute purity, 
If we don't think the right things, say the right things, post the right things, teach the right things, advocate for the right things, behave in the right way, and sign up for the right causes, we're going to be canceled and punished in myriad ways. We will, as Jesus said in the verses just prior to this, we will be pushed out of our synagogues. We will be forced out of our synagogues. What are our synagogues today? Our synagogues today are our workplaces, our families, our social media communities, our education communities, we get pushed out of those synagogues. And here's the thing about the purity culture today. There is no forgiveness. There is no grace. There is no redemption. There is no recovery. There is no restoration. There are none of the things that the gospel is all about. You have to be pure, and if you're not, that's the end of the game. That's it. You're done. So we discover that the world's purity system is a zero-sum game. So it is only through the conviction of the Holy Spirit that a sinful, self-righteous person can see the folly of their conviction and the righteousness of Christ revealed. And then third, the Holy Spirit convinces, convicts, and reveals to us about judgment. Uh, the world tells us that judgment does not culminate with separation from God in a place called hell. But the Holy Spirit exposes and dispels this myth. And the keeper of the world's understanding of judgment, in other words, the incorrect understanding of judgment, the keeper of that understanding is the prince of this world. That would be Satan. The Holy Spirit sets us straight when it comes to Satan. Jesus is the one who holds all righteousness and all judgment. And he's been dethroned. But here's the question that a lot of people ask, and it's a really good question. And it's helpful to try to understand this. If, as Jesus says, the prince of this world has been judged, why are we still in this battle? Why is it still so hard? Because it is hard. Can I get an amen? I mean, it is hard, right? Okay. So have you, anybody ever heard of the already but not yet? Okay, good. I see a lot of people shaking their heads. So... Those of you, the already but not yet, Jesus has won, but we're still fighting the battle. It's, it's like when, when you tape a game of your favorite team, and they've already won, but you don't know. You've avoided the internet and newspa newspapers. That's something my generation used to get news from. You, you've avoided all information, so you have a, a tape. I even said tape. You have a digital recording of the game, okay? And you're going to watch the game as if, as if you don't know, uh, because you don't know the outcome. They've already won, but you're still in the battle. It's kind of like that. It's the already, but not yet. We're still battling. And Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 that we've got to put on the armor of God for this battle. Uh, John Crawford at the Preaching Collective <laughs> a couple weeks ago, he had a great uh, illustration of this. And John, I found out at this preaching collective, he's, he's a scorpion nerd like I am, and apparently none of the other guys are. But we love to find scorpions and then do ungodly things to them because it's interesting to watch them, okay? Anyway, so John talks about how if you find a scorpion and you cut its head off, it still runs around trying to sting people, right? You think, cut, it, cut the scorpion's head off and you won't get hurt by the scorpion. No, 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 no. Don't make that mistake. 
Okay, you got to kill a scorpion like 15 or 20 times before a scorpion is dead. Anybody know that about scorpions? I mean, they're rough. They are tough. They are prehistoric and they're mean, okay? But you cut a scorpion's head off and he's still running around trying to sting people for a little while. Eventually, he's done. So the point is, Satan has an expiration date, but he's still running around stinging people right now. But we need to understand that we are living in victory, even though it doesn't feel like that all the time. Now, consider, I, just, I have to throw this in when we talk about the Holy Spirit. I think far too many people who claim to be Christ followers talk about how they are spirit-led. yet led. I'm spirit-led. That's good. And yet, the spirit never seems to lead them into things that are challenging or difficult or that confront their own self-righteous worldview. Have you ever experienced this? Okay. If it's the spirit's job to convict us, expose to us the reality of sin, righteousness, and judgment, you would think that the spirit's leadership might not always be our favorite thing, right? But the spirit is the right thing, the true thing. Now, I'm not saying that the spirit will always lead us into challenges. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that far too many Christians conflate the Holy Spirit with their own desires. I'm always amused by how some people will claim that the Spirit told them to do something that's specifically at odds with what God's Word says. That's not the Holy Spirit. You got to test those spirits. One last thing here before we go into the last four verses. All this conviction and revelation about sin, righteousness, and judgment... What are we supposed to do about it once we have had this encounter with these truths? <laughs> you come to Christ. Because he's the one that holds these things. He's the one who's all about these things. Believe in him as Savior. Come to him. So verses 12 through 15. I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Uh, verse 12 just reminds me of the reality that if we knew everything we, thought, we think that we're entitled to, to know, that we have a right to know, it would probably destroy us. You know, you read the Bible and there are so many unanswered questions and you want to find the answer to those questions. Maybe God is saying, you're not ready for those answers. You can't handle those answers. So this is a push against the arrogance that we all have. I have it as well in relation to God. I, again, I, you know, talking to people, I just, I feel like I need to know everything that God knows. Wouldn't that be fair? Well, that's actually what happened in Genesis chapter 3. That's the original sin. And then verse 13, he says that the Spirit will guide us into all truth. Guiding us into all truth is a consequence of the Holy Spirit's job description. Glorifying Jesus is also a consequence of the Holy Spirit convicting us about sin, righteousness, and judgment. So we could look at it this way. The Holy Spirit's job has three, has three bullet points. Convict us about sin. Convict us about righteousness. Convict us about judgment. And the results of those three bullet points are that we are guided into all truth and Jesus is glorified. 
But finally, in this little passage, this little paragraph, these last four verses, I think the overarching point that we can pull out of these four verses is the relationship of the community of the Trinity. Notice again, you have the Trinity here. You have the Father, you have the Son, you have the Holy Spirit. I hear uh, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, so the Trinity isn't a real thing. Uh, Okay, well, what do you do with this? The Trinity is real, and here's the Trinity, and this is about the community of the Trinity. It's a beautiful community, and, it's, and it should be an exemplar, an example for how we should live in community with each other as well. Uh, John Ortberg uses one word to describe the relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this community. They are yielded to one another. That's a kind of a fancy word for submitted to one another. The Father is submitted to the Son and the Spirit. The Spirit is submitted to the Son and the Father. The Son is submitted to the Father and the Spirit. Isn't it? it, They're all submitted. They're yielded to each other. They're also shy towards one another. You think about, for instance, here, the Holy Spirit's concern is to glorify who? Jesus, not himself. And Jesus is saying that the people are going to be better off with the Holy Spirit than with him. So he's shy towards the Holy Spirit. Jesus also has said over and over and over again, I'm only doing what my father told me to do. I'm only doing what my father sent me to do. This is all about my father. He's shy towards the father. The father then stands at Jesus' baptism and says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. The Trinity also lives in harmony and respect with each other. They honor each other. And then here's a big one. They also, each of them, they stay in their lane. (laughs) They know what their role is, what they're supposed to be doing, and they stay in their lane. That's wisdom. They have wisdom about their relationship and about each other. They have trust. This is a picture of how our gospel-centered relationships and community should be. Of course, of course, they're broken with sin. They're marred with sin, but our, our desire at Redemption Church is to push into that gospel-centeredness that will get us closer and closer to this kind of relationship with each other. So as we wrap up, I want to mention one last thing that was brought up in the preaching collective, which I think is a helpful thing to look at. It seems as though in Christendom, in church world, it seems as though there's a spectrum of the way people sort of manifest their faith Many different spectrums, but the spectrum I'm going to talk about is how over here you have people that are really focused on the Word of God, the Bible, the Word. Everything is about the Word. We're going to go to the Word. We're going to study the Word. What's the answer to to the question of what we're going to do about a youth pastor? We got to go to the Word. Everything is about the Word. And then you have people way over here on the other end of the spectrum. Everything's about the Spirit. Got to go to the Spirit. Got to listen to the Spirit. Got to seek the Spirit. Got to have the spirit involved in this. So you got word and spirit. The problem with people over here, and and I'll be the first to admit, I tend to be more on this end of the spectrum. The problem with me is I need more spirit. And the problem with those over here is they need more word. And they need to understand that there's a confluence between the two and that they're both checking each other out. There's a system of checks and balances there if you want to talk about it that way. If you hear from the Spirit, check it out with the Word. And and I can't understand how anybody could 
could never prepare and study the word without inviting the spirit in because he's going to illuminate and give you the wisdom to be able to do that. A couple of times in my Christian life, I've been frustrated by the person who gets up on Sunday and he says, you know, I didn't have any time today. I didn't have any time this week to prepare my sermon. And so I'm just going to let the Holy Spirit take over today. And I'm like, okay, so when I prepare a sermon, the Holy Spirit's not involved? That's a problem. That's a problem. First thing I do now when I go to the Word and start studying the Word is I, I pray that the Holy Spirit will be there to guide me, to enlighten me, to open the door for me. Sure, I've got my commentaries and I've got Demeter checking my work. I've got all the, everything that I need, okay? But the Spirit's got to be involved. The Holy Spirit is essential, not an optional add-on. And the Holy Spirit, if it weren't for the Holy Spirit, the work of the gospel would not be done. We need to remember that. It's not up to us. I saw on your screen this morning that God speaks and we respond. That is theologically correct. We respond. God initiates, we respond. Our job is to respond. His job is the result. That's a beautiful thing. Does it take the pressure off? In many ways it does. But we still need to be the hands and feet of God. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word and its truth. We thank you for the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit who has convicted us of that, who has convinced us of that, who has revealed that to us. So God, I pray that we would have the courage to live in your spirit And by your word, and I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.